climate change is, is the issue that we're currently confronting, but it's a symptom. It's not the cause. The cause is that we are so focused on what divides us rather than what unites us. Whereas in fact, as humans who all share this home, what unites us is far more than what divides us. Are you ready to be the change you want to see in the world? Are you ready to make choices that have a positive impact on your daily life, your community, and the planet? You are in the right place. I'm Anne-Therese Gennari. And I'm Robin Shaw. And this is the Hate Change Podcast. This episode is sponsored by the Climate Optimist Masterclass. I'm so excited to share with you that the Climate Optimist Masterclass is now available on theclimateoptimist.com. Get access to all eight classes, which you can take at your own speed, so you can transform climate anxiety and overwhelm into empowerment and meaningful action. This masterclass consists of eight one-hour-long classes that are educational, inspiring, actionable, and full of joy. I know because I took this class when it was offered live. We learned about the psychology of change, how to trigger our happiness hormones to fuel our climate action, the difference between a stakeholder and shareholder economy, what it means to practice conscious leadership, and so much more. This is a critical time in human history. The time for us to act is now. Anne-Therese created the Climate Optimist Masterclass to bring more of us to this work. And she shows us that this work can be full of optimism as we create a better world together. Go to theclimateoptimist.com to learn more and remember that together we can change the world. Hi guys, welcome back to Hey Change Podcast. Today we have a really exciting episode to share with you. We've been talking to the incredible Catherine Hayhoe, who is an atmospheric scientist whose work has resulted in over 125 peer-reviewed papers. Her TED Talk has nearly 4 million views and she's been named one of Time's 100 Most Influential People, one of Huffington Post's 20 Climate Champions, and has been named one of Fortune's world's greatest leaders. She also made Elle Magazine's list of 27 women leading the charge, and this one stood out for me as a parent. She is one of Working Mother's 50 Most Influential Moms. That is to name only a very few of the many, many accolades and honors that Catherine has received. This episode is so incredible and you are in for such a treat. She shares with us tips for how to onboard people to climate solutions from a place of optimism, connection, and love. And it's so helpful to understand how to deal with people who are just non-believers. You know, there's these people who don't believe in climate change and she gives great examples of how we can approach people like that and all the things that we can do in our daily lives to start to make more of a difference. Catherine just came out with her new book, Saving Us, and I highly recommend anyone who wants to learn how to start talking about climate change, how to get people excited, and also just to understand the world and why we haven't really done more about climate change up until now, so we can start turning that around and move towards a better tomorrow. Make sure to check out Saving Us, and let's get going with this episode that is jam-packed with science, tips, and inspiration. And make sure to stay tuned for the end because Rob and I will come back with a gift for you guys that we're only offering to Hey Change listeners. So Robin and I will be back after the episode for a very special gift only for you guys. Okay, let's dive in. This is Catherine Hayho. As someone who spent honestly a big part of my adult life trying to figure out how we get people to care about climate change. I feel like I'm talking to my maker right now. It's just really exciting. And I want to talk a little bit about my favorite part about your TED Talk, which is actually a story that you also mentioned in your book, Saving Us. And it's about the first time you talk about climate change at a college. And afterwards, you ask the room if there are any questions. And one guy instantly raises his hand and you get excited. But his question is, you're a Democrat, aren't you? To which you answer, no, no. I'm Canadian. <laughs> you guys are both Canadian, so you can you can claim this. Yes. Um, this is, you know, I, I, I can I can see, 
how you felt on the stage when you got that question. But why has climate change become so political? Well, it's been done deliberately. So when you surveyed people back in the 1990s and you asked them what you what they thought about climate change, you would get pretty much the same answer from both Republicans and Democrats. In fact, in the first Gallup poll, Republicans edged Democrats out just slightly in terms of how concerned they were about climate change. So wow. what happened? What changed in the last 20, 25 years? Not the science. The science is even more clear today than it was before. What changed was it was deliberately politically polarized. Why? Because once climate change became an issue that was no longer far away and distant, but here and now, once it became an issue that was affecting us right here and right now, it demanded action. And action on, on climate change consists of this, weaning ourselves off fossil fuels as soon as possible. Well, if you look at the carbon emissions in our atmosphere, two thirds of them come from just 90 corporations. 90 companies have, have produced two thirds of the carbon emissions since the dawn of the industrial era. Just 20 companies have produced a third of those emissions since the 1960s. And when you look at who those 20 companies are, the largest oil, gas, and coal companies in the world, and then you go to the list of the richest companies in the world, you will see a very big overlap between those two lists. And so unfortunately, many of those who hold the balance of power and wealth in this world, it is in their very best interest to keep us addicted to fossil fuels as long as possible for the benefit of their quarterly returns and to the detriment of every single other human on this planet. So we're fighting to the, with the next person, literally, because someone who wanted to make money and wants to make money wants us to think that we have different values. That's a very good way to put it. That's exactly what ha is happening. Because nobody wants to say it's real, but I don't want to fix it, because that would make us a bad person. So instead, what they did very cleverly, and there's this amazing book and a documentary called Merchants of Doubt that explains how the fossil fuel industry manufactured doubt and how big corporations manufactured doubt. They hired some of the same people who used to work for the tobacco lobby, um, who hired fake experts and put them in white coats and said, oh, tobacco smoking doesn't cause cancer and, cli and climate change isn't real. They set up think tanks, they wrote op-eds, they attacked climate scientists like me. They bought politicians with the goal of sowing doubt, of saying, well, we don't know if it's real. We don't know if it's us. We don't know if it's serious. And it's definitely too expensive to do something to fix it. Now, of course, for them, that is true. But for everybody else, it's not. Did you know that air pollution from fossil fuels, so not the heat trapping gases that are building up in the atmosphere, wrapping an extra blanket around the planet, causing it to warm, just the air pollution, that dirty stuff that you see in the air over big cities and you breathe in and it burns your lungs, Air pollution from burning fossil fuels is responsible for nearly 9 million deaths every year. We are at 4.8 million deaths from COVID right now around the world. And every single premature death is a tragedy. I know people who've lost their lives and you probably do too. But those COVID headlines, we see them every day. We have a pretty good idea, most of us, of how many people have lost their lives to COVID. Nobody knows that we're losing almost double that number every single year to air pollution from burning fossil fuels. So from that perspective alone, there is every reason to stop, let alone what it's doing to our planet. Yet we continue day after day with oil spill after oil spill, with pollution after pollution, with more and more supersized hurricanes, wildfires burning greater area, increasing risk of heavy rainfall and floods and killer heat waves. We keep on paying the price for the benefits that the industry is reaping. That has to change. But the reason it hasn't changed is because it has been so successfully polarized. Today, climate change is still one of the top three most politically polarized issues in the whole country. And it's been that way since the Obama administration. Why? Because people set out to make it that way. Wow. That is just, it feels overwhelming to think about like kind of what we're up against as individuals and you know, this idea that it's polarizing in a sense that we're, we're meant to believe that we have different values and a different set of morals than, you know, someone across the aisle, so to speak. Um, one of the things I found really interesting about you and your husband is, you know, you, of course, being a climate scientist, and he is a pastor. And religious faith 
and climate science has been sort of pitted against each other in some ways. I'm curious about the ways that you find that both, you know, your personal relationship with your husband, how that influences each other's work, but also the ways that religion and science can actually support each other. Yes. So I grew up with a science teacher dad, uh, which means that I was taught from an early age that science was the coolest, most interesting thing you could possibly study. And as you were just saying, Robin, your son already feels the same way. So he's on a good track. Yes. (laughs) Um, But I also grew up in a family where our faith was very important to us as well. I grew up in a church. I was taught that the Bible is God's word and that creation or nature, the universe is God's express word. And if we truly believe they both come from the same place, and that's what Christians believe, Christians believe the universe and the Bible came from the same place, the same person, so to speak, then how could they possibly be in conflict with each other? It just doesn't make sense. It's like if you do a podcast and you write a book, they're coming from the same person. So why would they be fundamentally in conflict? And why would people have to pick sides? Now, of course, I'm not naive. I know that there's many cases where it appears as if science and religion are in conflict. But in those cases, isn't it just that we are interpreting our theology through some very, very thick lenses, very thick cultural lenses. In some cases are so thick, we literally can't even read the words on the page. And in other cases, you know, science is always learning more too. Science is always evolving, always changing. And although some things are set in stone, we know gravity exists. We know climate is changing. We do know humans are responsible, but other things we're learning more about as we go through time. And so with a little patience and humility, sometimes those conflicts can be resolved. Sometimes they might not be resolved within our lifetime, but what we do know is how could they possibly be in conflict? And if they appear to be, it's on us, it's our fault, (laughs) not the fault of science and not the fault of religion itself. So, Mm. so with that perspective, um, I was actually planning to be an astrophysicist. Uh, That was my, my plan. And I was almost finished my undergraduate degree. Um, in astronomy and physics, when I needed an extra class to complete my breadth requirements. And I looked over, uh, you know, I looked around the new course offerings, and there was a brand new class on climate change. I thought, well, that looks interesting. Why not take it? So I did. And it completely changed my life, because that's where I learned not only that climate change is here and now and urgent, and action is needed, but I also learned how profoundly unfair it is. Climate change disproportionately affects the poorest and most marginalized people in the world, whether they're living right here in Texas, where I am, or whether they're, you know, in sub-Saharan Africa or Southeast Asia. And when I learned that, it was not my head, it was not my science, it was my heart, and it was my faith that said, I have to do everything I can to help with that problem. Because I truly believe that we are called to love other people. That's what we're supposed to be recognized as. That's literally the words of Jesus. They're supposed to recognize you by your love for other people. And how different would the world be if everybody who called themselves a Christian could be pointed out immediately and recognized by their love for other people? We would be living in a very different world than the world we're living in today, where I won't even say what Christians are characterized, but believe me, it's probably pretty much the opposite of love. Uh, And so that's what led me to become a climate scientist. And so rather rather than seeing a conflict between the science I do and the faith I have, it's the faith, the the faith-informed values I have that led me to become somebody who studies climate change, who advocates for climate action, who is doing everything she can to protect this incredible world that we share with our our sisters and our brothers around the world with every living thing. And uh, most of all for our children who will inherit this world that we leave them. That's incredible. It's, it's really, it's really nice to hear you speak about this because, you know, I, I think I'm not alone in, I think for me, in some ways I villainized religion. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've seen how much pain it can cause in, you know, when it's um, played out, you know, in our human world. Um, but I, I feel this sense of there's room for me to come back to my, to a deeper understanding of my own faith mm-hmm. in partnership with my love of the world, my love of the earth and my understanding of the urgency of, of the climate change that we are faced right now with, um, it's just really profound. I actually feel a bit emotional speaking about it because I think I've been, yeah, like I've, I've really sort of, um, separated myself from religious people in a way. And it's really beautiful to have that opportunity to, to bring those two sides of oneself together. Thank you. I completely understand where you're coming from because, um, well, first of all, interestingly, you mentioned my husband's a pastor. He's also a linguist. 
And because he's a linguist and because he understands the roots of words, he says, you know, the root of the word religion is to return to bondage, mm-hmm. to return to a set of behavioral rules and regulations that you're trying to obey to make yourself a good person, but you're constantly failing at. And so what, what I actually believe, and that's why I sort of assume, I don't, I don't use the word religion any more than I can help. And in fact, my husband wrote a great book called God Without Religion. <laughs> a lot of people are like, oh, is that a book about atheism? <laughs> but no, <laughs> it's, it's, about, it's about faith. It's about relationship. It's about love. It's not about obeying a new set of 10 commandments. Thou shalt always vote Republican. Thou shalt <laughs> never, never agree that climate is changing. That, you know, that, that's, <laughs> and, it, and it can go on from there. Yes. It's not about the statement of faith that people have crafted for themselves based on political ideology in the United States in the year 2021 and somehow put a bit of Christian window dressing on it and called it a religion. Well, it is a religion. It's a false religion. It's a political religion. It is a return to bondage with a set of rules that you have to obey that in many cases have absolutely nothing to do with what the Bible says, nothing to do with what Jesus taught, and absolutely nothing to do with love at its core. And so, so that's why, yes, when I, when I talk about what I believe, I tend to not want to use that word religion because it isn't mm-hmm. about a type of cultural uh, religiosity and rules. And it certainly is not about looking about looking to what politics to inform my faith. It's really looking to the heart of what we believe, which at the heart of it is really love. Uh, and, and if, if we love, if we love each other, then how can we see injustices committed in the world and not want to stand up and say something about it and do something about it? And if we love this incredible planet that we live on our home, if we love every little aspect of it, and how can you not, if you take the time to just observe it, if we love that, how would we not fight for every other living thing that shares this planet with us? Um, That's just who we are. Um, And when we stop to think about that, instead of being caught up in this whole world of divisiveness and tribalism and, you know, always trying to, own own them and you know stick it to those other people instead when we focus on what we have in common rather than what divides us everything just sort of falls into place and clicks and makes sense and all the puzzle pieces fit together and we see the big picture that we all want a better future we all want a safe place to live we all want clean water to come out of the tap and food enough food to eat and a lot of people in this world don't even have that and climate change is making all of those things worse and so that's why um when I, when I talk about climate change, especially if I speak at a Christian college or something, my title is often loving your global neighbor, because that's really what this is about. It really all comes down to love. And so um, when I wrote Saving Us, it, it looks like a climate book, but if you just sort of, that, that's, I feel like that's just the, the outer skin of the onion <laughs> and inside. It's really about um, what you talk about, about how does change happen? Why can't we just get along? And we all want a better future. How do we get there? I, I love everything about this because it really speaks to me about I, I, I've gone through this journey of not needing to put titles to myself. You know, mm-hmm. I think when I first became, quote unquote, an activist, I needed to know what I was doing, why I was doing it, like, where did I belong? And it felt like I didn't belong anywhere, you know, so like, OK, now I'm this vegan and now I have to push that message on everyone. And then you get so because there is so much intentional <sighs> denial out there or like people who want you to not believe in that and there's so much data going against each other you get so lost in that and really what it's all about is about coming back to yourself in bondage with yourself Mm -hmm. with nature with your neighbor and ask yourself like what if I acted from love what would I do what would I believe in and I think we're moving towards that and you know we owe the work to people like you who is really pioneering this this space but for me, it's like, you know, titles make things so much more difficult. And we are just all beings on this planet. And we share this journey together. And like what we're saying here in Hey Change, like, how can we be better at choosing change? And what does that look like? Um, and so I just want to say, like, thank you so much for everything you're doing. And you, you mentioned conversation and starting conversations as a key way to really excel this movement and if someone wants to help out like I get this question like what can I do to help bring a better kind of future closer and Mm -hmm. we say this often here on Hey Change and you mentioned it too in your book just start having conversations but I think for someone who's new to the space or you want to talk about climate change you often reach this point of like people don't want to hear it or you know, there's a lot of confusion or you feel like you don't know enough, like you're not a climate expert. So you don't feel like you have the right to say something. You don't want to give out false information, but yet we have to start having more conversations. So 
what are um, some tips that you want to give people just to like start talking about it more in general? Yes. So, so often we might've given it a try and it didn't go so well. And that's often because we did one of three things that is not conducive to good conversation, no matter what topic we're talking about. And when we're talking about an existential crisis that could mean the end of civilization as we know it, all of those emotions are just magnified, especially when we know that the solutions involve changing everything. Right. And a lot of people, we fear loss more than we, more than we want gain. And so when climate solutions are couched in terms of loss and sacrifice, often that just makes people hold tighter to what they have rather than let it go. So, so often we begin a conversation sometimes with disagreeing. We hear somebody say something and we just jump right in. We're like, that is wrong. And I'm going to show you, (laughs) I'm going to school you. And believe me, I have had my share of those conversations because there's nothing scientists like doing better than showing that somebody is wrong. (laughs) It is our food and drink, but it doesn't convince other people to change their minds. It just makes them dig in even harder because climate change is not black holes. Climate change is a very politically polarized issue. And if I were a black hole scientist and I, um, you know, technically if I were a cosmologist and I told you something that we knew about the, you know, the expansion of the universe or dark matter, most people would be like, oh, okay, fine. I accept that. You're an expert. But if I, as a climate scientist, tell them something that they don't want to agree with, like, no, it's not volcanoes. It really is humans causing climate change. They're not going to say, oh, okay, you're the expert. They're going to dig in their heels harder and say, oh, you're just ignorant. You don't even know. Because you're saying they're of the issue, basically, is what they're hearing. That's exactly. They're interpreting the information as a threat. So beginning by arguing doesn't work. What else doesn't work? And this is actually a whole section of my book. What doesn't work? (laughs) What else doesn't work is what we often try next, which is fear. We think if they're not doing anything, they're not worried enough. If they're not worried enough, I can load up that dump truck with fear-based arguments. You know, and, And as a scientist, I can certainly do it. I can load it up to the ceiling with all kinds of horrible things that are already happening due to climate change, literally horrible things that anybody would agree are horrible, not just to polar bears, but to people too, not just to people over there, but to people right here. And we can dump that load of fear on people. But here's the problem. If we don't know what to do, fear activates us. Why would we ever want to fix a problem if we didn't think there was a problem? It activates us, but if we don't know what to do about it, it paralyzes us. And it causes us to disengage further. And the next time we hear it, we check out even more because we feel helpless and hopeless. And that's what the data shows. It shows that 70% of people in the U.S. are already worried about climate change, 70%. But 50% of us feel helpless and hopeless. We don't know what to do and we don't think there's anything we can do. And that's a much bigger problem. And dumping more fear in people who are hopeless and helpless isn't going to change. What's the third mistake we make? The third mistake we make is guilting people, judging people. I'm often asked, well, how do I tell my neighbor that they should stop flying or stop driving that gas guzzling truck or stop doing this or that? And my answer is you don't. You don't because that never changed anybody. And unfortunately, we were talking earlier about religion, right? About different, you know, new sets of 10 commandments that we construct for ourselves and how there's 10 commandments, thou shalt always vote Republican, thou shalt always blah, blah, blah. Well, unfortunately, humans being humans and our brains being the same type of brains, no matter, you know, where we fall on the political spectrum or levels of concern about climate change, we also have a temptation that I see all the time now to create a new set of 10 green commandments. Thou shalt not drive a car. Thou shalt have solar panels. Thou shalt be vegan. Thou shalt not have children. If, if, if you only have, if you have children, only one child or else you violated that commandment. And there's, we, we construct this whole set of thou shalt commandments. And then we go around running, trying to impose guilt on people who break any of our commandments. And that doesn't work. In the book, I talk about how I was at a meeting once of, of a bunch of different Christians, Protestant and Catholic Christians, talking about how to reach their community. And finally, by the, by the end of the day, one man had enough. He just thumped the table. And he's like, all that you've been talking about is pointless. All you have to do is tell people it's a sin. Just tell them it's a sin. Every time they turn on their car, it's a sin. And you know how I felt? I still remember. My reaction was so visceral. I was like, oh, yeah? So I live somewhere that I have no access to public transportation. I bike where I could, but I've nearly been killed multiple times biking. So when I got pregnant, I had to stop biking because I was not going to put that baby's life at risk by being run over by a, you know, a a Yukon driver with a, you know, with their cell phone in one hand and a giant soft drink in the other. And then that's not a stereotype. That's literally happened to me two or three times. Oh my gosh. So I said, okay, so when I go to take my son to the doctor, that's a sin. 
When I'm going to church, that's a sin. When I'm going to work to make a living to feed my family, that's a sin. I just wanted to go out to the parking lot, find the biggest Hummer I could. And it was Texas, so I'm sure I could have. And I just wanted to drive circles around that man, leaning out the window, yelling, sinning, I'm sinning, look at me. Why did I feel that way? It's because I felt helpless and hopeless. There was no way that I could detach from that car. And it wasn't my fault. We lived in a place where there was no public transit. We had tried to live close to campus. It had fallen through literally three times. That's how much we had tried to to live close to where I could walk. I still would have had to drive to church in the grocery store. And so I felt helpless, hopeless, and judged. And it made me just dig in my heels even more and not want to change at all. What does work then? If those things don't work, what does work, right? First of all, beginning with something we agree on rather than something we disagree on. Bringing in good news about solutions that are already happening. The fact that the giant boulder of climate action is not sitting at the bottom of the hill with no one's hand on it. It's at the top of the hill and there are millions of hands. And I want to tell you a story about what our city is doing or what our school is doing or about what I'm doing myself in my personal life or what somebody else is doing that I know about. Isn't it amazing? I just heard, you know, okay, here's my story from yesterday. Literally, I just heard yesterday that the Presbyterian Church of Ireland had a general assembly yesterday. And they called for a vote to divest from fossil fuels. Wow. And in the call for the vote, they quoted from saving us. Wow. Congratulations. I, I, first I, of all. I even have tears in my eyes right now. <laughs> That's the power of our voices. I mean, do you think the General Assembly woke up that morning and decided to do it? No. Individual people within their churches had been having conversations about it for years, beginning with what they had in common. We're all Presbyterians. We all hold the same values. We all care about people who are suffering. Let's look at how climate change is increasing the suffering that many of the poorest people in our own communities, as well as on the other side of the world, are enduring. Is it right for us to continue to profit financially from the primary source of their suffering? You have to know that there were thousands of these conversations that happened before it ever came to vote and thousands of people who participated in them. So beginning a conversation with shared values, talking about something constructive that is or can be done about it, and not guilting people, but sharing from the heart how excited you are. And so I love talking to people about my solar panels. I don't tell people you should get them. I'm like, you wouldn't believe where we got them. We got them from this company that's part of the just transition. They hire oil workers who lost their job and they retrain them how to do solar panel manufacturing. And this is how much our power bill went down. And then I got a plug-in car. And during COVID, I didn't have to go to the gas station. It was awesome. I never had to go to the gas station because, you know, all those germs and everything, but I had a plug-in car and, and just sort of, you know, that's the type of thing that makes people think, oh, that sounds amazing. Well, where did you get it? And how much did it cost? And do you have a solar panel, you know, installer that you trust? And, and it's not just about the big things. It's about the little things too, like what we eat. So I'm not a vegan, but I definitely have um, changed completely the way that we eat. And I love sharing new recipes I've found, plant-based recipes. I eat um, what they call waste meat. So there's a lot of invasive species here and there's companies that actually cull them and then they turn them into things that people can eat. Um, We don't eat, you know, no fast food hamburgers or anything like that because that contributes actively to deforestation as well as heat trapping gas emissions. And I heard my son um, telling somebody the other day, they, they were asking my son, you know, what do you all eat? And he's like, Oh, we eat a lot of soup <laughs> and it's pretty good. I like the soup and the vegetables. We eat months, meat once in, a, you know, once in a while, but it's always something that my mom gets from this local organic farm. And so it's usually really good quality. So I was sort of laughed when I heard that because like, he wasn't telling them like we have this horrible diet. He's like, yeah, we eat great food. And this is what it's like. So, so that's the type of thing that we can talk about with other people, but ultimately it isn't about changing our lives. It's about changing the system. And to change the system, we need to use our voices to talk about how we can change not just what we do at home, but what we do at our school, at our place of work, in our neighborhood, at our, you know, whatever community organization we're part of. If we, if we are a person who's a birder or a skier or a kayaker or we fish or we hunt or we're part of a church or we're part of any type of organization, the Rotary Club, the Lions Club, the Kiwanis Club, you know, the PTA, you get the picture. Whoever we are, we have a voice we can use. And that's how we can change the world. And in fact, when you look at how the world has changed before in the past 100, 200 years, our major cultural shifts have all happened when people use their voices. Yeah. I just want to plug because 
this really speaks to something I actually talk a lot about in my climate optimist class, which is if individual action matters. I feel like it's a question we keep asking ourselves over and over and over again. And what's come to me is like, they matter to me, right? Like they matter to me because I feel better. It's it's a sense of like, just mending my anxiety and like some rebel sanity and like I feel better about doing what I do and that also builds my character so I view myself differently and that new character is going to view the world differently and I'm going to be more open-minded to new solutions and the fact that we can do things differently and then also we need to not forget that we're planting seeds which was just you know your whole point like just by showing up excited about the things we're doing people will see that it may not you know be an instant gratification we're like okay now I'm seeing you pick up this and now you're going to do it as well but it might be weeks down the line or years down the line, but like they will, something was planted and that's going to start to grow. And the more of us to do that, we're shifting norms and culture. And when we're shifting Mm -hmm. norms and culture, we're shifting the system. So I just want to plug that for anyone who's like, okay, so my individual actions matter. They definitely do. And it's a really good start for just for a conversation start as well. Because if you are the weird person who shows up and do something differently, that one might spark a conversation. And that's a really good end for you to start talking about it and invite people on board as well. Totally. And you know what I love? You actually quoted one of my favorite favorite Bible verses in what you were saying, (laughs) believe it or not. So there's a verse that talks about hope and it begins with suffering. And it says suffering beginning in a dark place produces perseverance and perseverance produces character and character produces hope. And that's exactly what you said. It sort of gave me chills down my back because um, that's where we find hope is in action and our actions change us. They change people around us. They change us for social norms and they make us more aware so that if I am keeping a sharp eye on my food waste, then I'm starting to think, okay, well, let's look at the cafeteria where I eat lunch. What are they doing with their food waste? Let's have a conversation about it. If I keep a sharp eye on my travel, which I do, that's the biggest part of my carbon footprint. Now at my organization, I'm asking the hard questions. How much do we all travel? Are we incentivized not to fly? Is there a way that we could look at, you know, how far do you have to be traveling before you actually get on a plane? Is it necessary? So it enables us to use our voice to look at the bigger picture and to make the system-wide changes that really truly will affect change, including where we put our money, where we bank, where our pension funds are invested. There's so many ways to use our voice, but then to share that information with other people. And like in, in, um, in my book, I have so many stories of, of, you know, just ordinary people who do this. And one of them is of Don who works at a big hospital, a big cancer hospital. And he said, you know, it occurred to me here, we are trying to heal people of cancer and we have a large chunk of our pension funds invested in fossil fuels. Hmm. Isn't that a little contradictory? that we're working towards people's health, yet we are actually you know, profiting again from the industry that is causing some of these very problems because um, fossil fuel extraction and processing and combustion contributes to elevated risk of cancer in, in areas surrounding those you know, mountaintop coal mining removal, oil refineries and more. So Don decided to not, he, he couldn't divest his own pension fund by himself, but he decided to start using his voice to talk to all the people who worked at his hospital about this. So that's the type of ways that we can change. Like you said, when our action changes ourselves, that's how we start to change the world. And so people often ask me, should, should we be focusing on individual action or system-wide change? And my answer is yes. Yeah, it's something that I've learned as well, like through my friendship with Anne Therese, she's such an inspiration for me on on my own personal journey, um, that our individual actions also affect our community. Like the place that we're likely to have the most influence is with our own friends. It's within our places of work. It's within the schools that we either attend or our children go to. It's those own our own personal community, our own network that we can have influence and that's where to bring our voice. Um, one of the questions that I had prepared was asking you about, you know, do you have like key phrases that you use that you kind of keep in your back pocket if someone really kind of doesn't believe in climate change, you know, or do you just talk about the solutions regardless of whether they're on board with, with how real quote unquote climate change is? So 7% of us are dismissive. 7%, but they are the loudest voices on this issue. So we often think that they're much more than 7%. And they're the ones who are just obsessed with the idea that this is a hoax and they cannot stop talking about it. They will always be bringing up how, you know, I heard scientists just created, you know, invented that data or it's just solar cycles or, you know, what about China? Why should we do anything anyways? If, if, you know, 
notwithstanding the fact that the United States is by far the number one producer of cumulative carbon emissions since the dawn of the industrial era. They're the ones who can't stop talking about why it isn't real or it isn't us or it isn't bad or we shouldn't fix it. And sometimes all four at the same time. So we often sort of fantasize about having a positive construction with someone who's dismissive. But the reason why they're called dismissive is because they will dismiss everything. They will dismiss 200 years of basic science. They will dismiss 2,000 scientists telling them it's real. They will dismiss 2 million scientific studies. That's not an exaggeration. There's actually more than 2 million scientific studies on climate change. Wow. And, and my personal definition of a dismissive, taking a faith-based angle, is if an angel from God with brand new tablets of stone that say global warming is real and foot high letters of flame appeared to a dismissive, they would dismiss them too. So <laughs> why would I think that I could change their mind? I can't. My goal is not to change the seven percenters mind. My goal is to change the mind of everybody else who most of whom are already worried, but they feel hopeless and helpless. So, but if somebody who's dismissive um, comes at me, which frequently happens on social media. And when I say frequently, I would mean at least once or twice a day, literally. And that's just Twitter. That's leaving aside Facebook and LinkedIn and all of those others. Not on Instagram though. On Instagram, there's only one a month. Instagram people are very <laughs> loving and very friendly. Um, <laughs> which is why I spend more of my time on Instagram if I'm just trying to relax. <laughs> but on Twitter, they're there all the time. And on Facebook and LinkedIn, they're also there in spades. And when a dismissive person confronts me publicly, I answer their question or objection. Absolutely, 100%. Because typically they'll be saying, it's just a natural cycle or you know, scientists aren't sure. And so what I do is I give them, if, it, if I'm speaking to them in person, I simply say, no, that's not true. And I give them maybe a one sentence reason why it's not true. And in my book, I have a chapter where I sort of say, here's what we need to know, the basics. No, that's not true. The sun's energy has been going down the last 50 years, not up. No, that's not true. 99.9% .9 of scientists agree. You know, or, or, or no, that's not true. Climate solutions are good for us. They grow the economy and clean up our air and our water. Oh, and they help with climate change too. But I always pivot. We need to pivot because 99.9% .9 of their objections have nothing to do with basic physics. It's all solution aversion. It's all that tribalism and polarization we were just talking about where we have been duped into thinking that somehow we have different values from each other. So I pivot immediately and I say, but did you know? And I actually had a conversation with a man at church a few years ago that I can actually model for you if you want. <laughs> and so, so he said, he, it had taken him a while to find out that the pastor's wife was a climate scientist, but he had finally figured it out and he was not happy. So he confronted me after church and he said, don't you know, it's just the sun. And I said, no, it's not. The sun's energy has been going down the last 50 years, not up. And did you know that in Texas, we get 23% of our energy from the wind and the sun? He said, hmm, well, it's just volcanic eruptions anyways. And I said, no, it's not. One volcanic eruption, uh, volcanic eruptions cool the earth rather than heating it. And did you know that for every megawatt of new energy that was installed in Texas, if it's wind or solar, we get eight times more jobs than if it's natural gas. I was having this conversation in Texas. And yeah. then he said, um, I forget his third point, but his third point was something along the lines of, you know, don't you know those scientists are just, you know, faking the temperature data? And I said, no, they're not. I'm one of those scientists and I've looked at the temperature data myself. And did you know that last year, 90% of new energy installed around the world was clean energy and the United States has only half the amount of new energy that China does. Don't you think we should be catching up? And so at that point he stopped. He said, why are you saying these things? And I said, because these are the solutions to climate change. Do you have a problem with our biggest army base being powered by clean energy, saving taxpayers $150 million a year? Do you have a problem with all of the amazing industry that's going up where we are living in rural areas, offering young people jobs through wind energy and solar energy? Do you have, you know, do you have a problem with the fact that I think we should be catching up technologically with the rest of the world? <laughs> and he's like, no. And I said, well, that's great. Then we agree. We agree on the solutions. That's all we have to agree on. And so he sort of looked at me and they said, well, Obama faked his birth certificate. And at that point, at that point like that's literally what he said. At that point, I was like, we're just going to leave that there. <laughs> we're off topic. <laughs> yes, but we agree on climate solutions. And so, so that, that's a very extreme example of a conversation with somebody who's dismissive. But it shows how even if somebody has to reject the science because it's their identity, they can still get on board with solutions. And 
we did a really awesome experiment that didn't come out until after I wrote the book. So I, it's not in the book, but if you don't mind, I would love to tell you about this experiment. It's so cool. Yes, please. Okay. So beginning with shared values and connecting them to solutions that are attractive and positive and constructive. We decided to try this out in real life at a large scale. So not individual conversations, not talking to the people where we work or the people where we live. We decided to make short one minute videos and just throw them out on social media. That's it. Real world, Facebook. So we got Bob Inglis, who is a two-time Republican congressman from South Carolina, who now um, leads a free market institute on free market solutions to climate change. Then we got a libertarian, a guy called Jerry Taylor, who heads a libertarian um, think tank and who talks about how personal liberties are being affected by climate impacts Mm -hmm. and how clean energy can make us more independent. Then there was a retired Air Force general who talked about how climate change was a national security issue and how the Department of Defense is the biggest investor in clean energy in the country. And then they got me, a scientist, to also talk about how as a Christian, I believe that if you take the Bible seriously from the beginning to the very end, we would be at the front of the line demanding climate action because that's where our theology would lead us. So we made these short one minute videos and then Yale researchers aired them on social media in three different districts. And they just sort of threw them out there. So it wasn't people in a room watching the video. They put them out there in real life. And then they monitored Republican opinions on climate change in that district. And you wouldn't believe it. They went up noticeably. Is climate change real? Is it harming us? Are solutions important? Every category, Republican opinions went up. Just by having that information out there that began with something that they cared about, that connected it to shared values and common solutions, it got them on board. So the only question in my mind now is why aren't we all doing this? Wow. Doesn't that just blow your mind? That's incredible. I've been teaching this for a while, you know, like we need to find common grounds. We need to speak on the solutions and we need to pivot and not just like continue to induce fear and gloom and all these things. And I'm looking at you and I'm like, first of all, how could anyone deny you? I feel like you're the most optimistic, like action driven person I've spoken to in probably forever. Um, So you're just a living example of that. This works. Um, So anyone's listening, go out there and try it out. You know, this is like our own personal experience. Like, can we actually get people excited about climate solutions and all the things we can do i want to also hear your personal favorite solutions like what are you doing that is on a daily basis or at least continuously sparking your optimism for a better world that's a great question so what i've found is that hope will not come to find you if we just sit there waiting for hope to show up it never is going to we're just going to sink further into depression despair anxiety frustration You go to any major news network and you just look at their headlines and the headlines that aren't factual are all pretty much bad. Why? Because it makes people click. We sort of feed our negative cycle by by reinforcing it with more negativity, more outrage, more fear, more anxiety. If we want hope, we have to go out and look for it. And as you just pointed out is when we do something, when we act, that's where we find hope. So I find hope in actively going out and looking for stories and collecting stories of what people are doing. I want to know what individual people are doing. I want to know what big companies are doing. I want to know what my town or my city, my state is doing. I'm from Canada, so I follow very closely what's happening at home in Canada. And I get really excited by the fact that, you know, Warren Buffett is going to build the biggest, or he's already building the biggest wind farm in Canada in Alberta, which is the Texas of Canada, the home of our oil and gas industry. And it's going to provide jobs for people that don't hinge on extracting oil and gas from the ground. So things, big picture, things like that give me hope. I get hope from hearing about some of the amazing organizations that are working in some of the poorest parts of the world, empowering women and girls to be educated, to be able to get the knowledge and the experience that they know to be able to support their families and um, organizations like Solar Sister that I talk about in the book that actually trains women to be business entrepreneurs, to sell solar lanterns and um, you know solar, solar panels to charge people's cell phones, enable them to start small businesses, to, for their kids to study at night, for them to walk safely outside at night. I get so excited when I hear about these things that have win-win-win solutions, you know, like, oh, they help with climate change too. But in the meantime, they invest in people's lives. They help them support their families. They improve the quality of our health. They've got so many short-term wins that climate change is almost like the plus one at the end, so to speak. 
Um, but I also really get a lot of joy from what I do myself. Um, I, every year I adopt two new habits and some of them are tough. I'm not going to lie. The, the, the big change I made, um, last year was, um, swapping out the gas stove for an induction stove. I love that gas stove. Oh my goodness. It was one of my five top favorite possessions that just gave me so much joy when I cooked over it because you just put the pan on, it heats up and oh, gas is so good. But not only are you burning natural gas that produces carbon emissions inside your home and breathing in too much carbon dioxide is actually not healthy. It slows down your brain function. But it turns out that a brand new study just came out a year ago last May from the UCLA showing that burning natural gas inside the home produces all kinds of pollutants that you and your family are breathing in. Children have a six times greater risk of having asthma or developing asthma in a home that has a gas powered stove in it. And so that for me really tipped the balance. I mean, I had known all along I was burning natural gas. I was under no illusions of what was coming out when I turned that thing on. But what really sealed the deal for me was the fact that my family, who I put so much work and effort and thought and love into creating, you know, delicious, healthy meals for, that's one of my, the ways I express my love for my family is really, you know, making good food. But the act of making food was actively polluting the air that they breathe. It horrifies me so much that I switched and I complained. I complained up and down for six months about how long it took for things to heat up and how I just wasn't used to it, but I got used to it. And actually now induction is great because you can really control it so nicely. And now I love it. And I'm so glad I did it because when I cook, it gives me joy because I'm thinking about how not only am I making this food for my family, but I'm not polluting our air anymore either. And, oh, I'm helping with climate change, you know, plus one. Um, and I love that food waste was a big focus for me the year before. I used to go grocery shopping on those massive trips where you bring home like 12 bags and you shove it all into a freezer and then you forget about half of it. So some of it goes bad and you're really short on the fresh vegetables and the fresh seafood and, and fish, which is the most low carbon meat that you can eat, by the way, as well as the most healthy that you can eat fish. And you, you tend to sort of bulk up on the things that you can, you know, save for later. Well, what I realized is we we're wasting so much food. Plus I needed an extra freezer. So I decided I'm going to sell the freezer. I'm putting up drying racks instead. So I can hang my clothes up in the same space. The space is being used and I'm going to start going grocery shopping on my way home from school twice a week with two bags, no more than two bags. So I go in, it takes 10 minutes. I go out. I just go to the fruits. I go to the vegetables. I might get a couple of cans and some fish and that's it. And we eat so much better, so much more healthy. The fridge is half empty. It's never been half empty in my life. And the quality of our food has increased. I'm saving money. Oh, and I'm helping with climate change too. And so, you know, you can just sort of pick up from my voice. I just love talking about these things because they're fun <laughs> and they make a difference, right? And they're real life things, but it's also a big issue at the global scale. And so we can support like organizations that collect ugly food and sell it and donate it to low-income families who don't have access to fresh fruits and vegetables. We can um, talk to our place of work or our kids' cafeteria about what they're doing with food waste. We can take what we're doing and scale it up. And that's how we can change the world is by recognizing that, you know what, there's better ways to do what we're doing. It's not at all about sacrifice and loss and giving up and Puritan values and returning to the stone age and 10 new green commandments. It's about something better. It's a better world, a better life for every single one of us, not just a few. I love that. And it, it just so reminds me of like the world that we live in that asks us to buy, buy, buy so many things, like minimizing what we buy, really taking a look at like, what do we really need? And just engaging in that process of being really intentional. You know, you mentioned doing that with your groceries of like, what do I really truly need? How the climate solution ends up being really practical on so many levels. It can, it can be, you know, financially benefit you. It can be give you more, you know, peace of mind, less stress. Like there's so many solutions that as you as you were phrasing, it was like, oh, and by the way, it's a climate solution. And it's such a beautiful way to look at it. It's very inspiring. Thank you. Those are amazing tips. Um, before we start to wrap up, I would love to know if there's anything else that you would want to share with our listeners about what's in the works for you, anything you're working on, um, or anything else that you would you know, want to share with us. Oh, sure. Well, thank you for asking. Um, I have so many things I'm excited about, and I find hope from a lot of the different ways that I get involved with different groups and organizations. So um, if anybody's looking for ways to act, I would encourage people to find a group that shares your values that shares your interests, that shares your priorities and join them, follow them on social media, sign up for their email, 
they'll be sending you all kinds of ideas and tips and requests that you can share and you can be part of. So I'm really excited about an organization that I helped to uh, found called Science Moms. It's for moms who are concerned about climate change, which 83% of us are in the United States, but don't know what to do about it or how to talk about it. And so Science Moms creates short little explainers about, hey, if you're wondering how climate change affects the air your kids breathe, or how climate change affects our food, or how climate change affects women and girls more than men, you know, we've got just little short explainers, and then it's like, here, click here to contact your local representative and say, we need climate action. Click here to, you know, figure out how to have a conversation with somebody about it. Click here for books that you can read to your kid or a documentary or movie that you can watch together. Um, So I just love that I'm able to connect with with other moms about this. Um, I serve as a science advisor for Young Evangelicals for Climate Action. They've got 20,000 young evangelicals around the country who are practicing not their religion, but their faith in terms of advocating for clean action, saying we need a better world for everyone, not just for a few. Um, I love what I'm doing with the Nature Conservancy. I just joined them as their chief scientist this past summer, and they are so invested in nature-based solutions to climate change, which are some more of those win-win-wins. So for example, in many U.S. cities, lower-income neighborhoods can be up to 15 degrees warmer or hotter, I should say, than a, a more wealthy neighborhood during a heat wave because of historic redlining. Which, which were horrible racist practices, which led to um, low-income neighborhoods having lots of concrete, no trees, being very exposed to things like flooding, heavy rainfall, and heat. So one of the projects that the Nature Conservancy is doing is an urban for- reforestation project where they're planting trees everywhere, which, first of all, clean up the air because those neighborhoods typically have higher levels of air pollution as well. So they're cleaning up the air. They are also improving our mental health because being surrounded by nature actually improves our mental health. And they're tracking that as well as physical health. They also protect people from extreme heat because trees reflect a lot of the sun's energy. And they also produce moisture that takes up that, that heat too. So it cools the neighborhoods down when the heat, when they when, when we have heat waves. Oh, and growing trees sucks carbon out of the atmosphere too. So again, climate's like the fourth benefit, not the first. And protecting coastal wetlands that protect us from storm surges. Oh, and they suck up carbon too. Uh, Restoring ecosystems that provide areas for, um, for natural habitat. And of course they suck up carbon too. I just get really excited when we talk about what real climate solutions look like, because once people know what they look like, who's not gonna be on board with these solutions? It's that we've been told, people have been deliberately telling us that the solutions are bad or negative or punitive, or they'll take away everything we hold dear. They'll ruin the economy. They'll ruin our personal lives. They'll ruin our, you know, uh, interfere with our personal liberties. Yeah, none of that is true. They're all going to lead us to that better world. And when we talk about those solutions, I mean, who doesn't want that for their city, for their home, for their family, for their world? I feel like you just wrapped up a whole existence of this podcast in that one final um, sentence. It's who wouldn't want to help fuel a different tomorrow. Who wouldn't want to choose change. It's all about empowerment and seeing each other and choosing love and choosing healing. And it's so, it's, it's just so it's, it's wonderful to listen to you because you're like, and, and, and it's just one more thing coming. And then at the very end, and it's good for climate change. It's like, okay, great. <laughs> so let's sign us up. Um, Catherine, it's been an absolute pleasure. We are so honored to have you here. Thank you for your time. Thank you for everything you're doing for the world, for communities, for future generations. Thank you on behalf of everyone and this whole planet for all the things that you do. You, I feel like you already answered this question over and over again in multiple different ways throughout this conversation. But a question we love to um, end our conversations with is, what does being an optimist in action mean to you? Oh, I love that question. And I would say that it means, first of all, looking our current situation right in the face. So we are in a very bad situation and it is going to get worse. Hope is not guaranteed. Hope is the small probability of a better future. And we know that if we decide that it's too late, it is. So optimism begins with really looking at what is happening and how bad it is, but then recognizing 
and this is based on science, recognizing that the future is not written in stone, that our choices matter. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change is a collection of thousands of scientists from around the world that release these periodic doom-filled reports on climate change. And this past summer, they released their sixth report, which, was, which they called a code red for climate. But here's how they concluded. Every year matters. Every bit of warming matters. Every choice matters and every action matters. So as an optimist, based in science, we have to recognize that the future truly is up to us. And as Catherine Wilkinson says, she's one of my colleagues who um, edited All We Can Save, that amazing book, The Compendium of, of 60 Women's Voices on Climate. I love what she said so much that I chose her quote to end saving us. And this is what she said. She said, it is a magnificent thing to be alive in a moment that matters so much. Oh my God, what an incredible episode. I, I feel so, I don't know, I, I just can't stop smiling. It's such such a treat to talk to Catherine and to hear what she has to say and how inspired she is in her actions. And also, I just cannot believe how much energy she has to respond to all these people on Twitter all the time. I'm, I'm amazed because <laughs> I don't know how I would do that. Definitely. I mean, she certainly has a lot of people who are non-believers coming up and, and really trying to call her out on stuff. And she's so good at turning it around, at using science and data to back up what she knows in her heart, which is that humans have more in common with each other than we have things that divide us. Mm -hmm. And I love how she talks about hope is not something that just comes to us. It's something that we have to seek out. You know, there's this great moment when she talks about when we act, that's where we find hope. And I felt that in my life. I mean, it's something I learned with you is that when we are feeling down and overwhelmed about the state of the world, one of the best things that we can do is take action. And that's what it means to be an optimist in action, um, yes. which you and I have talked so much about. Yeah, <laughs> it was it was so fun to talk to Catherine. And what we realized is in this conversation, there is so much that she's talking about and that we learned all over again uh, from listening to her that we're actually are covering in the Climate Optimist Masterclass. And um, you may have remembered that I was talking about this class in the beginning of the summer. Robin, you were one of my students. And I say students, but I feel like we all learned from each other with such an incredible eight weeks uh, of diving deep into the psychology behind change and talking to experts in different fields on how to deal with climate anxiety and growing emotional intelligence and learning how to onboard people and the small things we can do in our everyday lives that would make us feel more grounded and empowered and optimistic in our ways to changing the world. And we have already mentioned that the class is now available for anyone to take for only $45. But the gift that we promised to you at the beginning of the episode is that we also want to actually gift this for free to any Hey Change listener who really wants to take this course. So sign up to my newsletter, The Climate Optimist. There's a link in the show notes. Or if you already are signed up to my newsletter, just contact me either on Instagram and my DM or send me an email at anturies at theclimateoptimist.com. And I will send you a link for you to take this class for free. We are so excited to gift this to you because it's been such an incredible journey to to take this course with the students, to have Robin on the class as well. And there's so much to learn and so much, so many ways to be empowered and inspired by all the things that is in this class. So make sure to head over to the show notes, click the link, sign up for the newsletter, and I will send you a link of how to sign up for free. Yes, you are going to love the Climate Optimist Masterclass. So during the month of November, make sure you sign up to the newsletter. If you have already, thank you. We appreciate you. And make sure to reach out to Antrice directly. You are going to love all of the knowledge and wisdom and heart that is in this class. This class is for everyone. This class is for you. So I'm really excited and so happy that we have this opportunity to gift it to you today. And with that, we'll say have an amazing day, continue to be optimists in action, and we hope to see you back here soon for another episode of the Hey Change podcast. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Hey Change podcast. If you'd like to support the show, please share this episode with friends, family, or someone in your network. 
Also, don't forget to give it five stars in the app so that we can reach more listeners just like you. We love hearing from our listeners, so please tag us when you share this episode on social media. We'd love to connect with you and learn about what you are doing too. You can find where to reach us in the show notes. Before you go, we'd like to invite you to pause and to leave you with this one final question. What does being an optimist in action mean to you?